Have you ever found yourself saying, okay, I know, I know, I know, I know. I don't know about you, but sometimes somebody's trying to tell you something, and it's something that you've heard before. It's something that you're already aware of. And you're, I know, I know, I, I know. You, you know, we kind of, we're like, oh, yeah, I know this. I, I've heard this before. I, I know, I know, I got it. Well, we're at the conclusion of John's letter, the letter of 1 John. And at the end of the letter, we have John saying that to us only a little bit differently. He goes, you know, you know, you know, you know. He closes his letter by telling us stuff that he's already told us before, but he wants to make sure we don't forget. I know you've heard this. I know I've said this. I know we've talked about this, but, but I, want you to, I want you to know, to know, to know, to know. I don't want you to forget this. These are the things that you can know. These are the things of which you can be certain. These are the things that I want you to take with you as this letter wraps up. So as we study today the conclusion of John's letter, what can we know? We know, we know. On what do you and I possess certainty? And asking that, let's pray together. Lord, help us to know. Help us to know what we need to know. And Father, as we're going to hear, help us to know who we need to know. And give us certainty in him and in his love and his care for us. So Lord, speak now as we open your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me to the end of 1 John. 1 John chapter 5. Verses 13 through 21, that is 961 in the Pew Bible, or 1213 in the large print Pew Bibles. So again, open up your own Bible, your Bible app, or the Pew Bible, and join me in 1 John chapter 5. First John chapter 5, starting in verse 13, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask God and he will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. You might have heard it, but seven times, Seven times in these few verses, John repeats the word no. Because again, this section is about what can you know? What can you be certain of? And what can we be certain of? You know, some people would say there's nothing that we're certain of except for death and taxes. And so public service announcement, one more week until your taxes are due. And just for the date of your death, I can't help you on that one. 
But some would say, in fact, that John here is a bit presumptuous, maybe even arrogant, declaring with certainty, these are the things that you know, you know, you know. Because what can we really know in this world? Isn't that kind of presumptuous? However, I believe that John would answer and he'd say, well, true arrogance is actually saying that we can't know things that God has said we can know. True arrogance would be to disagree with God and say that you know better than him. God has said, you know this. And we go, no, I don't. How can I know that? So John says, these are the things that we know because God himself has made them known to us. And if God himself has made them known to us, then you know, you know, you know, and you can be certain. And right out of the gate, John offers us his thesis statement. And this is actually his entire purpose for writing this letter. Verse 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, as we've considered, John wrote this letter to believers in the church to offer them assurance of their salvation because false Gnostic teachers had risen up in the church and were leading away disciples. And the faith of the believers who remained was shaken. They were wondering, we don't have this hidden gnosis, this this secret knowledge that's being offered by these teachers. We haven't had these amazing spiritual experiences that these, these teachers are claiming to offer. So how can we know that we truly have eternal life? How can we know that we're truly in relationship with God? And so John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. Do you notice what what John does there? He says, hey, listen, it's not actually what you know. It's who you know. It's not what you know. It's who you know. And you believe in, you know, the son of God. He says secret knowledge that these Gnostic teachers are offering. Secret knowledge isn't going to get you eternal life. A spiritual experience isn't going to get you eternal life. It's not what you know or what you experience. It's who you know. And you believe you know the Son of God. Remember just two verses before this one. John wrote in verses 11 and 12 of this same chapter. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. So whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So John says to those who remained in the church, it's who you know, and you know the one in whom you believed, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and you know that only in Him is eternal life. And if you know Him, if you have a relationship with Him, then you know you have eternal life. Now, we just might want to quickly note here that when John writes that they believe in Jesus, he's not talking about some kind of cranial belief. He's not talking about cognitive assent to an idea or to a doctrine. Because we need to remember that that type of belief only takes you so far. Remember, James wrote in James chapter 2, verse 19, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Friends, even the demons cognitively assent to who God is. You know, one of the first things that we see Jesus do when he was in his ministry on earth 
whenever he would encounter somebody who was demon-possessed, the first thing we almost always see him do is silence the demon. Because the demon immediately recognized him and said, you're the son of God. And it wasn't time for that to be revealed. So he silenced him. The, the demons believe. They know. They recognize who Jesus is. It's not just a cognitive issue of belief. The belief that John speaks of when he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. The belief is more than a cognitive assent. It's more than just something in your mind. The belief that John is talking about is belief that you had, each one of you in this room, without thinking about it, you believed that the pew you're sitting on would hold you. And so you sat down. If you believe someone is good with money, you'll entrust her with your money to invest it for you. If you believe that the pilot is competent and the plane is safe, you will trust and you will get on that plane. John writes, you believe in the name of the Son of God. In other words, you believe he is who he says he is. And he can do what he said he can do. You believe that he's trustworthy, so you've rested yourself on his promises. You've given him all the money. You've given him all of yourself and entrusted himself and said, okay, take this. You put yourself on the plane and said, I trust you're going to safely get me where you say you're going to get me. You have taken a step. It's more than a cognitive ascent. It's a trust. It's a submission. And friends, it begs the question, do you believe? Not, not just a cognitive ascent, not just an identification, not just picking Jesus out of a lineup. Do you believe, trust in, submit to? Friends, it's not just a what. What do you believe? It's a who. Who do you believe? It's not what you know. It's who you know. And friends, do you know, do you believe in Jesus? Because John says that if we believe in him, we know we have eternal life. Now, right here, John uses a present tense verb. You have eternal life, not will have eternal life someday in the future. You have eternal life here now, starting right now. It's an eternal life that begins here in time and continues on forevermore. You have eternal life. Friends, you here, do you have that kind of certainty? That kind of assurance that you have eternal life, a new life from God through his son, Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus Christ, who is that life? And if so, what stops you? What stops you from believing? From taking that step of faith? From entrusting yourself fully and completely to him? John continues in verses 14 and 15, and he says that those who believe in Jesus can also know that God hears them, that God hears them when they pray. The new life that we have in Christ includes a confidence as we approach God. Even as we sang with confidence, I now draw nigh with confidence. I now draw near and Abba, Father, Abba, cry. We draw near to with confidence to God and we know that he hears us. Now, note that John doesn't say we receive everything that we ask of God in prayer. He, he says that if we ask according to his will, he hears. He reminds us that prayer is not witchcraft. 
You know, pagan religions believe that you can use certain spells or practices or sacrifices to manipulate supernatural or or natural forces. You can put them somehow under obligation. You can bend God's will to your will. You can impose your will somehow upon God. But John says prayer isn't like that. By prayer, we don't seek to impose our will upon God and get everything we ask. By prayer, we seek, embrace, and align ourselves to God's will. Not try to align God to our will. As theologian John Stott very wisely put it, every true prayer is a variation on the theme, your will be done. Every prayer is a variation on that theme. Prayer is not about getting my will done, but about knowing and sharing in God's will. Prayer is about communion with God. It's about intimacy. It's about relationship. It's about confidently approaching. It's about certainly knowing that he hears. Prayer is you know, you know, you know him. And you know his will. And John gives an example an example of what he's talking about in prayer in verses 16 and 17. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, and I don't say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there's sin that does not lead to death. Now, before we get into this difficult statement here, I want us to first notice what is our response to sin? It's prayer. In his devotional classic, My Utmost for His Highest, Pastor Oswald Chambers warns us against becoming spiritual hypocrites. He says, we see where other people are failing, and then we take our discernment and we turn it into comments of ridicule and criticism instead of turning it into intercession on their behalf. Friends, when we discern sin, when we see the failure of another, is our first response criticism and gossip, or is it intercession for them? When we look at the sin around us, or the sin in this world, do we go, oh, look at that sin, look at those people, look at what they're doing, look at what he's doing, look at what she's doing. Is our first response criticism and ridicule, and even looking down on, or is our first response prayer, dear God, help them. Dear God, help. John reminds us here of the primacy and the power of prayer. John writes that when we ask, when we pray for those in sin, he says, God will give him life. What power is there in prayer? Do we believe that there is that kind of power in prayer? When we pray, it says confidently, God will give him life. Prayer on behalf of your brother or sister can give life to him, to her. What an untapped reservoir of power. What an unlooked for hope. What an untested promise of life we have. Church, are we faithful to pray? Are you faithful to pray? Or are you simply content to criticize and to gossip, sharing prayer concerns, but never actually praying about them? John reminds us to pray. To pray because of our confidence in Christ. When we see prayer, 
When we see sin, we can pray because of our confidence in Jesus Christ. John wrote all the way back, you might remember, at the beginning of this letter in chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then in chapter 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You see, we intercede for those who are in sin because Jesus Christ himself intercedes. We're following the example of Christ himself who intercedes when we sin. Sin should be confessed because sin, it says, can be forgiven. It can be cleansed because of Jesus' work. work, work. This is our confidence. We confess and we forgive, are forgiven and we are cleansed. So if we see our brother or sister in sin, we should ask God and he is faithful and just to forgive sins and God will give life. However, what does John mean as he goes on in this strange argument about sins that lead to death and sins that don't lead to death? Now, the Catholic Church has traditionally interpreted this passage to mean that there are two types of sins. There's mortal sins and there's venial sins. Mortal sin is a sin that causes spiritual death in the soul, separation from God. If we're in a state of grace, we, we lose that supernatural life. And venial sins are like slight sins. They don't actually break our friendship with God, but they injure it. And so they've created a distinction. But friends, the distinction is utterly subjective. And honestly, such a distinction finds no support in the rest of Scripture. All sins are equally bad and all sins equally lead to death. Now, we've got to admit that this passage is difficult and it's created much controversy in various interpretations over the years. But most likely what John is talking about when he discusses the sin that leads to death is what Jesus himself came and called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is also another difficult passage to understand. But in Matthew 12:31, and in all the par- parallels in the other Gospels, Jesus taught, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, to blasphemy is to speak irreverently or show contempt for God. So why? Why is this a sin that would lead to death? Why is this a sin that couldn't be forgiven? Why is this such a bad sin? What is it? Well, I like how theologian N.T. Wright explains it. He says, when we talk about this, the sin that leads to death or the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it isn't that God gets specifically angry with one sin in particular. It's rather that if you decide firmly that the doctor who's offering to perform a life-saving operation on you is in fact a sadistic murderer, you'll never give your consent for the operation. You see, in other words, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to resist and harden yourself against the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the only power that can bring us to repentance, that can bring us to confession, that can bring us to the operating table where Jesus Christ can do his work. And if I resist the power of the Holy Spirit, if I say, no, 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 the Holy Spirit, that's that's not good. I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm not going there. Resist the power of the Holy Spirit, if I unrelentingly and unrepentantly deny the only power that can bring me to the feet of Jesus Christ, that can bring me to the operating table where he can do his work on me, then there is no hope. I'm lost in my sin, and that sin is going to lead me to death. 
because I will never repent of it. I will never confess it. And Jesus Christ will never do his work to remove it. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not some one-time decision. It's a direction. It's less a momentary choice than a persistent condition. It's to unrepentantly slander and resist and deny the work of the Holy Spirit that would bring us to Christ, that would bring us to repentance, that would bring us to salvation. So the sin that leads to death is not a particular act. It's a hardness against the work of the Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the only one who can lead you and can lead me to repentance. The only one who can lead us to Christ in whom there is always forgiveness and cleansing. So when John talks about this sin that leads to death, he refers to the unrepentant hardness that resists the work of the Holy Spirit, that denies the identity of Jesus Christ as Savior. And John does not say that we shouldn't ever pray about such hardness. He simply noncommittally says, I don't say that one should pray for that. John expresses an incredible confidence in the power of prayer to give life to the repentant sinner. Yet he confesses prayer has its limits and there is no life without turning to the son in whom there is life. So we've got to admit this passage is difficult. But what is John saying that we can know for sure? Friends, what, what we, is clear John is saying is that we know we can pray with confidence. We know that God hears us. We know that prayer is powerful to give life to a repentant sinner. And yet, prayer is no guarantee. Some will remain hardened and resistant. And as such, some sin is going to end in death. But church, as we are reminded of prayer's power, the question that we might ask ourselves is, how is my prayer on behalf of other people? Do I pray? Do I intercede as if there's true power in prayer? And John continues on in verses 18 and 19 discussing what we know. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him and the evil one doesn't touch him. And we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You see, he says, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. He's simply repeating what he's taught before. John chapter 1, verse 6, he's already said, if we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie. We don't practice the truth. Biblically, walk is how we live. It's a direction of your life. It's about habitual, usual, regular action. To walk in darkness is to habitually, usually, regularly practice darkness or sin. And John says you can't. You can't walk in darkness and say you're in relationship, fellowship with God. And in verse 3, he repeats it. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he can't keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Again, the emphasis is on practice. It's not that a believer can't fall into and commit a sin. He's saying this is about direction, not perfection. This is about practice. This is about your habit of life, your walk of life. And what's evidence? What do you see? Because in today's passage, John uses the exact same language we see in chapter 3. He says, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. 
Not that the one born of God can never commit a sin, but the one born of God does not continue in abiding habitual sin. Friends, to be born of God changes your life. To truly be born of God changes you from the inside out. It'll change your walk. It will change your regular practice. You will be transformed. If you've been born of God, you'll start to develop the characteristics of your father. Just like your children have developed your characteristics for good and for bad. I see that every day. Usually the bad. As we're born of God, we start to develop His characteristics. We start to walk as He walked. We start to obey as Jesus obeyed. And so John makes this unwavering, confident statement. He says, we know those who are born of God are changed. They do not keep on sinning. Friends, what does your walk demonstrate? What is the habit and direction of your life? John's confidence is that we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. For Jesus, the one who was born of God, he says, protects him. And the evil one under whose power, he says, the whole world is under. The evil one can't touch him. Friends, John expresses confidence that those who are from God, who are born of him, are secure from the devil and his schemes. It is as we sang this morning, those he saves are his delight and Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last, bought by him at such a cost. He will hold me fast. It's as we sing sometimes, no power of hell and no scheme of man could ever pluck me from his hand. And until he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. John says, this we know, this is our confidence, that although the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, that evil one cannot touch us. Our confidence is that Christ holds us fast. Our sin will not separate us. No power of hell can snatch us from his hand. The one born of God is held fast in the hand of Jesus Christ. Christians, this is our confidence. Be not moved. Be not shaken. Be not duped by the promises of this world. Don't be lulled into complacency. Don't be shaken by your failures. This we know, that he will hold us fast. And are you here today and do you know such confidence, such assurance, such abiding peace? For Christ has come to give us confidence that we might know and rest secure in his hand. And John again confidently states what we know in verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who's true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. You know, in this verse, while the translation three times translates the Greek word here as true, the word here is not the normal word that's used for truth. It's actually a word that might be more properly uh, translated as real. So that you may know him who is real. And we are in him who's real. 
and His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the real God and eternal life. Because, friends, in this world, we're all looking for what's real. There are plenty of promises out there, and most of them are empty. They can't deliver on the goods. We need what's real. You know, this same Greek word is the one that we see repeated throughout John's gospel. Jesus came and he said, I am the real light. He said, I am the real bread from heaven. He said, I am the real vine. And John concluded in his gospel, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only real God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent John's been writing to us throughout this letter. He's going, hey, the Gnostic teachers, they're rising up in the church and they're promising you a real knowledge, a real experience of God. But that's not real. This is real. This is the real thing. Friends, all the other promises of this world are empty. All other claims fall short. All other truths are lies. We know him who is real and we are in him who's real in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the real and the eternal God. This is our confidence. This we know. And while almost all the other New Testament letters now conclude at this point would come to a nice benediction. We would have some greetings, say hi to this person, say hi to that person. I can't wait to visit you. Blessings to you in the name of God, the Father and our Lord Jesus. Some kind of great, grand ending. We come to verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Drop the mic, walk away. It's a lousy ending. You know, this ending has actually left people scratching their heads for ages because Number one, it's just so abrupt. But number two, there's nowhere else in this letter that John even mentions idols. Not once. In fact, in John's three letters, he never mentions idols. In John's gospel, he never mentions idols. This is the only place he brings up idols as his parting shot to this letter. And so, again, was it kind of like I'm running out of parchment? Oh, oh, one more thing before I forget. I meant to mention this earlier. Stay away from idols. You know, I don't think this is an afterthought. I actually believe this is a summary of the whole letter. You see, John has just finished reminding his letters, we know what's real. Against all the false delusions of the Gnostic teachers, against all these distorted understandings of Jesus that I've been arguing against, John says, this is what is real. This is what is true. Everything else, every other claim and promise and God is not real. It's an illusion. It's an idol. Because, friends, idols are things that we create and they are not real. The Apostle Paul wrote, we know that an idol has no real existence. The Old Testament prophets were harsh when they came down on the idols. The Lord spoke through Isaiah saying, behold, they're all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. The Lord spoke through Jeremiah saying his images are false and there's no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. See, idols are delusions. They claim to be real. They claim to be the real thing. They claim to be true. But John says, no, we know what's real. We know what's true. Keep yourselves from idols. And friends, understand this. The church in John's day wasn't being tempted to go off and worship little stone statues. That's not what he's talking about here. They were tempted to go off and worship 
false and unreal ideas about who Jesus is. Any understanding of Jesus manufactured by humans is an idol. Any understanding of Jesus that does not line up with what we know, with what God has revealed, what has been faithfully handed down to us through his apostles and his prophets is an idol. Church, we need to keep ourselves from idolatrous understandings of who Jesus Christ is. Because too many have formed Jesus into their own image. Too many have formed an image of Jesus that better fits with our culture. Too many are trying to fashion Jesus into something more palatable or more acceptable. And we've created an idol. And John says, little children, keep yourselves from those kind of idols. From those false ideas of Jesus Christ. Preacher and author Dick Lucas said poignantly, Satan's masterpiece is a sophisticated version of Christianity that is agreeable and acceptable to society, but in reality is empty of the life of the Spirit. In other words, it's an idol. We shaped Jesus into something that was far more palatable and more acceptable to us and to the culture. And we said, this is Jesus' worship, but we're worshiping idols. And friends, idols have no life. They have no power. They have no strength. They are empty. Church, Satan is smart. He's not going to tempt us with obvious evils or paganism or wooden statues. Just like in John's day, Satan tempts us with idolatrous, distorted, watered-down, self-serving understandings of who Jesus is. And we're forced to look in the mirror and go, am I worshiping an idol or am I worshiping the risen Jesus Christ as revealed to us in the Scriptures? And that's the purpose why John wrote this whole letter. He said, I want you to worship the real thing. I don't want you to be duped by something that's not real. I don't want you to go running off after idols. And so John has declared throughout this letter and he closes declaring, this is what we know. This is what we are certain of. This is what has been revealed by God himself through his apostles and little children. Keep yourself from idols. Church, you know, you know, you know. Against every idol and distorted image, you know the real God and his son, Jesus Christ, in whom there is eternal life. And in light of the reality of who we know, how then will we live? And church, will we now go from here living so that others might know him as well? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we might know. Give us confidence. And may we trust fully and completely in Jesus Christ, the true and risen God. In his name we pray. Amen.